Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. There are about a dozen plant species that only live in a special kind of habitat called a cedar glade. And that habitat mostly just exists in two Middle Tennessee counties. There are also several varieties of orchid native to our state. In other words, the ecosystems here can be pretty amazing when nature is able to work the way it should. But those native species can't always compete with invasive species. If you've ever seen a field choked with kudzu, you know what I'm talking about. There's also development. So today, talking about native plants, why they matter, and how to preserve them here in Middle Tennessee. But first, it's still hard to know how worried we should be about monkeypox, although the World Health Organization did declare it an international public health emergency over the weekend. Scientists have been concerned about the possibility of an epidemic for years. Now it's spreading around the globe. And it has reached us here in Davidson County. At last count, the number of cases here was still in the single digits. WPLN senior health care reporter Blake Farmer has been following this story. And he joins us now. How's it going, Blake? Thanks for being here. You're welcome. And and let me just say at the outset that I'm I'm not here to scare anyone. Okay. Thank you. I don't want to be scared. All right. Okay. So, you know, I think a lot of us are looking back at the start of COVID and how it was just a handful of cases for a while back then, too. What do we know about monkeypox and how it's spreading in Nashville or anywhere for that matter? Well, you know, the good thing about monkeypox is we do know quite a bit about how it spreads, um, and that is primarily through contact, specifically contact with a monkeypox rash on someone else. So, you know, monkeypox does have other symptoms, but the the rash is the the telltale sign. And these are usually um, blisters. They they almost look like warts if you look at pictures of them. Um, And and they're actually peculiar. They, They change over time, often have pus in them. Sorry to, to maybe gross folks out. But anyway, you you would likely not confuse these with bug bites or, or poison ivy, which we might get here in the summer. Um, and this rash does last for quite some time. It can take month a month to clear up. Um, often shows up first on the hands, uh, then the mouth, um, also the genitals. Okay. So officials say the outbreak appears mostly to affect men who have sex with other men. Is there some reason why they would be more at risk? Well, not exactly, except that this is a virus that is passed through contact, like we're talking about. So the more contact, the more risk. You know, the more sexual partners, the more risk. But this is most certainly not a disease for just gay men to worry about. Okay, right. Because it's not only spread through sexual contact. I heard on Weekend Edition that there's a possibility of transmission if you're fully clothed on a dance floor. That sounds pretty transmissible. So, you know, who should be concerned? Well, you know, I I, I do hate to say it, but it's kind of the point you're making. All of us. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, it's a bad Michael Jackson reference that I'm totally not going to make about being on the dance floor. Okay. Now, you said you weren't here to scare us. Yes. And... Thank you for scaring me. Well, you know, I was I was actually doing quite well not scaring myself as well as I've been covering this the last few weeks. But then I, I did call Dr. Donald Alsendor at Meharry Medical College. He's a, a virologist and professor. You know, the good news is monkeypox is 
more mild than its viral cousin, smallpox. Um, Sometimes it is just a rash with no other symptoms, though fever and other flu-like symptoms are are very common. Um, And there is a vaccine for it. It's actually the same vaccine as the smallpox uh, shot. But remember how monkeypox often appears on the hands at first, Mm -hmm. um, and and it can take a month to fully clear up, and and it's still contagious until that rash is is basically totally gone, Dr. Alcindor said. So here's what he says. Listen, while it, it seems to mostly be moving person to person through intimate contact, it can also pass with a simple handshake. Um, so, yeah, it's not airborne like COVID, but Alcindor is a bit concerned what happens in places with poor hand hygiene like schools. Here he is. Let's say monkeypox get into the schools in Tennessee and then the teachers and then the, uh, the people that work in the kitchen. And all I'm saying is that to put this infection in a population that is very... Uh, mobile and able to transmit that infection on a wide scale. Let me just say, it would affect children going back to school in a very serious way. You would then see a complete change in effort by the federal government for widespread vaccination in schools. You, You would see that happen overnight. Yeah, his point is, if you think quarantine times for COVID were bad, monkeypox, I mean, it could be twice as long. Blake, you said you weren't here to scare us. <laughs> That's all tough to hear, but okay, okay. There is a pretty effective vaccine, right? There, there is. All right, and Tennessee just got a few thousand doses, so who gets those? Will kids get the ones heading back to school in a few weeks? Will they be the first ones to get it? Well, that is certainly not the plan at all at the moment. Um, there's just not enough to go around. Most of what's being used across the country, even in cities that have much larger outbreaks than here, it's coming from a national stockpile, and the manufacturers of it are making more, but it's going to be next year before we're going to have doses in the millions available. Tennessee has received a few thousand doses to date, but right now the only people who can get them are those who've been deemed close contacts of the few confirmed cases in Davidson County. Like you said, Davidson County, we're still in the single digits. Metro Public Health Department is actually going to be putting out new numbers every Thursday, and just this week, Memphis found its first first case. So before you go, can I ask a simple question? Uh, yes. Why is it called monkeypox? All right. Um, it may actually not be called monkeypox monkey pox for long. So mostly people who've gotten this virus up to now have contracted it from exotic animals, um, mm. hence the name. Uh, the first known cases were, were actually from a colony of monkeys. But the virus has been with us for, for 60-something years, but has mostly been a disease dealt with on the African continent. What's new this year is it's been spreading in Europe. And here in the U.S., but the World Health Organization is is going to rename it um, since the name monkey has been used in very racist ways related to Africa. So this is certainly not an African virus. The monkeys who had it in the first cases, they were in Copenhagen. Hmm. So it's just only been African nations dealing with it for the most part since then. And there's been scant attention from it uh, from the U.S., uh, to this virus until now, but whatever it's called, we all may get to know this virus a little bit better before it goes away. Okay, speaking of that, any advice for folks who want to, what what, what can folks do to protect themselves all right, listen, and I, others? All I know is what, what we hear from the CDC, but here's what they say. Wash your hands. Okay. You see this little guy, hand sanitizer? Yeah, yeah. 
it's still going to help with this too. In fact, it may, it may be more helpful than with COVID. And then, of, of course, touching people with monkeypox, and um, and that's a, a difficult, delicate situation. Uh, but be careful. Uh, with your close contact and handling, let's say, bed linens of someone who has had monkeypox. So in a sense, COVID, COVID has prepared us for this. In some sense. That is WPLN's senior healthcare reporter, Blake Farmer. Blake's, thank you always for your reporting. You're welcome. We have to take a short break. When we come back, go with us on a hunt for an elusive and valuable plant growing wild in Middle Tennessee. Have you made the move to planting native species in your garden? Have you noticed invasive species crowding other plants out in our parks? Tweet us about it at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. A few times a month, we're going to take you out into the city with us to show you an ordinary street corner, a vacant grocery store, an inconspicuous bush in the woods. Now, I know what you're thinking. That doesn't sound very exciting. Our goal is to peel back the layers on an overlooked parts of the city and region, past and present. Today, we're dropping a pin, but we can't tell you where exactly. It's public land in the Rutherford County, and we're keeping the exact location a secret because it involves an endangered plant. Our producer, Steve Harouche, took a hike with MTSU plant scientist Ethan Swigert in search of wild ginseng. There's kind of a, a legend about ginseng that it, it shows itself to you, and if, if you're not ready, you won't find it. And so we had known about this patch and we went and, and found it. And then one of our colleagues wanted to see it and he spent about three hours, got lost back in here and never found it. <laughs> so the joke was like, well, you weren't ready. For what it's worth, I feel ready. As we get deeper into the woods, Ethan points out the trees along the way, mostly pine and other evergreens. The ground is rocky. So Ethan says we're not likely to find ginseng here. But then something catches his eye, and it definitely looks like ginseng, at least to me. False alarm. Now this is Virginia creeper here. It's a native vine. And people always will say, oh man, I've got like five acres of ginseng. And I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> five acres of ginseng, you're sitting on like a million dollars. No way. Virginia creeper is not worth anything. But if you've got wild ginseng on your property, now that's a different story. Yeah, watch your ankles. There are boulders everywhere, but soon the landscape begins to change. Less rocky, more maple trees. Signs that we're getting closer. And we're looking for a northeast-facing hillside. The way to, to find that is wake up in the morning and maybe around 9.30 or 10, look at where the sun hits, and that's a good spot to go and find ginseng. You want kind of a gently sloping, which as you can see is what we got here, and that'll help with drainage. Um, they like to be well watered, but not soggy and not too dry. They're pretty persnickety, really. 
like it just right. By now, we've been out for an hour, which is about twice as long as Ethan thought it might take. And even though it's hot and muggy, honestly, the hike is pretty enjoyable. Yeah, talking to those old ginsengers or sangers, going out singing, uh, a lot of what they talk about is um, just the moments of spending time with like their grandfather or dad or whatever and hiking in the woods, crawling under brush and stuff, just having fun. But we came here to find ginseng and it is not going well. Man, I just feel like it's right here and I'm not seeing it. This goes on for a while. Let me check my GPS. I'm in these little pockets like this, it's good to Kind of slow down a little bit and look for it. Nope, close. But that kind of shape is what you're looking for. So much Virginia creeper, it gets my hopes up. I think it is left here. Or actually, maybe right. Let's keep going that way. If I remember right, this patch will be on this side. Nope. <laughs> but all this time on the trail is giving Ethan plenty of time to school me on ginseng. It's been cultivated for thousands of years for its medicinal benefits. Native Americans use the root to treat everything from headaches to infertility. High blood pressure? Take wild ginseng. Low blood pressure? Take wild ginseng. It's sometimes called a miracle plant, and that's because really it can be whatever you need it to be. Almost, almost like a cigarette. You might smoke it if you need it to get amped up. You might smoke it if you need to calm down, kind of get the same effect. Right. Or a different effect depending on what you want. Ginseng's kind of like that. It's easy to see why it's so valuable. Ethan says the gnarlier the root, the better. Though it's nearly impossible to know how gnarly the root is from above ground. And in case you haven't put this together yet, it's nearly impossible to see, period even if you know what you're looking for. Which, thankfully, Ethan does. There, God, right there, there it is, look at that. We walked past it twice, that's it. That's ginseng, that's four prong. That's a huge one, good grief, walked right past it. Ha! <laughs> Told you, right? Like if it doesn't want to be seen, it won't. We slowed down, we, we chilled out, and then boom, there it is, I almost stepped on it. But so you can see these, these are the prongs. And these are, this whole thing is the leaf, and that's a leaflet. And then there, it's it's flowering. Man, I was getting worried. I was like, if I don't show him this, this dang plant, he's gonna think I'm a joke. The ginseng is no joke. It's a beautiful plant, and it was hiding in plain sight. It's also an endangered plant. So after all this, we leave it right where we found it and head back. Hiding in plain sight. I love it. Now, I do want to mention that ginseng is highly regulated in Tennessee, and we have a link to more information on the post for this episode at thisisnashville.org. My next guests have been working to help us all better understand the natural beauty that surrounds us. Kim Bailey is the former staff naturalist at Warner Parks, and Isaac Santos is a program coordinator at Shelby Park. Kim, Isaac, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Khalil. Thank you. Hello. So, Kim, let me start with you. As we just heard, there are amazing plants all around us that we might not notice. What are we missing sometimes when we look at a forest and just see a bunch of green? 
Well, I think people don't understand that we live in a wonderland here in Tennessee, that there is incredible biodiversity across the state. We have actually seven ecoregions from the Plains to the Eastern Mountains, and each have their own unique plant community. And Davidson County alone has 1,276 native vascular plants. Hmm. Species that makes our county fourth in the state for plant diversity. Now that's wonderful. Now, you know, did your work at Warner Parks did that affect how you thought about plants? Absolutely. Um, I did a lot of public programming, and while answering questions, interconnections between native plants and other living organisms inevitably came up. And in addition, the sheer amount of time I spent in nature was like a master class in why native plants are important. For example, when a hackberry butterfly lands on your sweaty arm to, to feed off your sweat, you, you realize that their young are dependent on hackberry trees, which are considered a weed tree here in Nashville. They also feed migratory birds and resident birds when the berries are ripe. And goldenrod flowers in the fall are covered in soldier beetles, which shows you that pollen and nectar from native wildflowers are essential to the insect's life. And then, of course, birds feasting on berries are an obvious example of this recurring theme of the ecology of our ecosystem and how important native plants are to that. Now, Isaac, you work at Shelby Park doing forest restoration. You know, what does a healthy forest look like as opposed to one that needs restoring? Yeah, so there are a lot of great examples of healthy forest here in Middle Tennessee and a lot of great examples of not-so-healthy forests. So if you walk around an area, um, actually a lot of areas in Warner Parks where they started to do some restoration, um, and also at Radnor Lake State Park, you can walk around this forest. It's open, it's spacious, there's a beautiful, mature canopy of hardwood trees, and then down below in the understory, there might be some bushes here and there. There might be some shrubs. But for the most part, it's relatively open, spacious forest you can see for a while. Mm-hmm. That's just quite peaceful, I imagine. It is. Yeah. Yeah. So we did a whole episode on invasive species. If you want to go back and listen at thisisnashville.org. Now, people have to contend with weeds when working in their yards. And the same is true for parks. Mm -hmm. Now, Kim, what does an invasive species pull look like at a public park? I can't imagine that that's an easy task. (laughs) Well, um, luckily, when you go to Warner Park, and I'm sure Shelby and other parks, too, they provide you with tools and instructions. And a large group will show up, and you'll clear an area and make a huge difference. As, as, he said, as Isaac said, you want to have a clear forest, not this undergrowth uh, you know, out-competing all of the native species. Now, Isaac, you've been organizing these at Shelby Park, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. How much progress have you made? So far, we started the program uh, end of 2022 or end of 2021, starting into 2022. And so far, we have cleared about four acres of forest from invasive species. How many people are involved in this effort? We've had a close. We've had more than 300 volunteers serve at this point, and uh, a lot of these volunteers are actually. Excuse me, we just had another massive corporate event that brought that number probably closer to 400 folks who have come out to the park uh, this winter and spring into the summer to pull invasive species and to plant native trees in their place. Why the season of winter, spring? Yeah, there are a couple reasons for that. One is it's it's not so fun to be out pulling a bunch of plants uh, in the heat of the day in the middle of the summer. Mm. And also you have things like poison ivy. The other thing that's really helpful, uh, invasive species make themselves very easy to find in late fall, early spring. 
um, one of the reasons they have an advantage is they have a, lar- a longer photosynthetic period, so they keep their leaves longer and then get them earlier than a lot of native plants. And that's an advantage for us in the winter, because the last thing we want is volunteers pulling native species. Mm-hmm. So it makes it really easy to say, well, here are the identifying features, but if it has leaves, it's most likely an invasive plant. Okay, so when we look deeper into green spaces available, what will we find? Uh, Could you clarify? You know, the green spaces available here in our region, looking at parks, looking Mm -hmm. at green spaces and greenways, what what will we find if we look deeper into them? Well, it it, it depends on the green space you're in. I mean, uh, if you're in an area like Shelby, I think the more time you spend there, the more you're going to realize, as Kim was saying, there's such a complex mosaic of biodiversity. I think the longer you spend there, the longer you realize uh, there's so much biodiversity and there's so many relationships. Um, And when you actually get to step into that space and feel like you're part of that, um, I think not only do wild areas, do green spaces provide all sorts of services uh, for us, um, whether that be trees moderating temperatures or uh, making sound quieter, but also it's such an area, as you mentioned, it's it's peaceful. It provides so much peace. And so all the green spaces around here provide such an opportunity for folks here to get out into the forest, to experience all the relationships, all the biodiversity that these places have to offer. So it's not about hitting up these parks and green spaces just for a hike. And to get some exercise, you're promoting, you really get yourself in touch with what's happening. Yeah, yeah. And I think green spaces, yeah, they offer so many different opportunities from recreation to to hiking. But I think if you would like, there is an opportunity to step deeper into those spaces to learn about local ecology. And I think whenever you learn about local ecology, local species, it makes a place really come alive. And I think that's the beauty of having green spaces so close in so many areas in Nashville. If someone wants to help with your forest restoration project, what should they do? Yeah, I think uh, step one is go on friendsofshelby.org slash volunteer and sign up for our newsletter. Uh, As we mentioned, we don't do a ton of invasive removal in the summer due to varying conditions. But as soon as efforts start to ramp up, we'll be sending that out in our newsletter and getting folks involved. All right. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm Khalil Colonna. We're talking this hour about plant conservation with Kim Bailey and Isaac Santos. Do you want to help Do you want to help identifying a plant naturally growing in your backyard or neighborhood? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Now, Kim, I want to know, this might sound like a very, very obvious question, but why is biodiversity important? Oh, biodiversity supplies so many of our um, resources. I mean, it provides water quality, air quality, pollination services, The more the biodiversity you have, the more resilient your habitat is or ecosystem. If you think about it, if there is a traumatic weather event or something else that happens, climate change, for example, if you just have three species in a habitat, they might all fail. But if you have 52 species, some of them are going to be able to adapt and and be resilient and stay healthy. So the more biodiversity, the healthier an ecosystem is. What about the plants that are the foundation to the local ecosystem? Like what are the so-called keystone plants? Well, this brings up my favorite author, Doug Tallamy. He's actually a professor at the University of Delaware doing intensive research on insect and native plant um, communities and their interactions. And he, um, he is the one that has identified that goldenrod and coneflowers and other asters are some keystone plants, which means that many, many species of bees, butterflies, beetles can feed on them. But then there are specialist bees that require a specific host plant, just like many butterflies require a host plant. 
So um, there's a lot of diversity, and it's really helpful to have a garden that, that feeds the generalist as well as the specialist bees. What are some of your favorites? Oh, I love bee balm and goldenrod. Um, the coral honeysuckle is beautiful, and I've seen my hummingbirds come to that as well as some other insects. Lots of asters and the salvia will bring a lot of different species. I've seen bees, bugs, beetles, butterflies, wasps. You know, so it's just great joy to go out into my garden and see all of these different insects that are actually getting sustenance and providing these ecosystem services we were talking about. Again, we will have a link to more information about Keystone plants on this episode post at thisisnashville.org. Isaac, do you have any favorite plants or trees? Oh, I do. Yeah. The area where we are working is called Beech Grove Hill. And beech trees, I had, I'm originally from the Seattle area, so I hadn't seen as many. And I came out here, and there's this area called Beech Grove Hill. And there was this tree that was deep in the thicket, surrounded by invasives, and it was really hard to see. And we started removing invasives and came upon this massive American beech tree that just has this very, it was a huge tree. It has thick gray bark, almost looks like elephant skin. And it's this mm. massive tree that just creates a huge canopy. And uh, I, I think since moving here, that's quickly become one of my favorites. Now, what do you think people misunderstand about forest restoration? Mm, that's a great question. Uh, well, I think one of the things people misunderstand is they hear forest restoration and they think, oh, this is something scientists do. This is this is not something I can do, which there is so much important work that goes on in the scientific community. But when we're talking about invasive species, the species that come into ecosystems that uh, radically reduce, drastically reduce biodiversity, and Kim talked about all the reasons that's important, there is a simple solution um, and it's something that can involve community members. Community members can come out and they can take an active role in forest restoration. And I think that's something that people don't understand is that it's something uh, right now at Friends of Shelby Park, we have volunteer events and it's something you can come, you can get involved with, and you can see the quick, tangible impacts of a large community mobilizing around forest restoration. Mm -hmm. Kim, how about you? What do you think are some of the obstacles to plant conservation? Well, really, I think lack of education is the biggest obstacle because if you ask most Nashvilleians, they don't really understand that if you go to a nursery that that anything they offer isn't good for your yard. And, and one thing I would ask listeners to do is first educate yourself and then go to your landscaper and to your nurseries and say, we only want natives and this is why it's so important. And stop Tropical plants that require more water and more pesticides and fertilizers when our native plants don't need all those things. So it actually helps save resources and save you money if you plant natives, as well as providing essential food and um, habitat and space for insects and other um, wildlife. So, yeah, there's a lot you can do to educate yourself. That's one of the big obstacles. And then um, I would say invasives we've already covered. There are huge obstacles to biodiversity. Climate change is going to be affecting our biodiversity because some of the plants that have traditionally lived here are not going to do as well as we warm as a, as a city. And so we'll have to, to navigate that issue. You know, it's a lot more than just planting trees, I imagine. So what are other things that we can do to help support our local e ecosystem? Well, one thing um, you can do is, is read Doug Talmy's book or join his Instagram page. You can um, join the local chapter of Wild Ones 
It's an organization that promotes native plant restoration, and they have a Facebook page that will answer your questions, and they provide seminars and field trips. Um, I would also volunteer. There's a group called the Habitat Connection, whose main mission is to educate HOAs about native plants, because so often um, contractors will go in and clear a lot, build a big, massive building, and then plant just a few trees, often not native. And, of course, we know that to have a truly native yard, you need layers. You need the low-growing wildflowers and then the taller perennials and then shrubs and then trees and all creating a service for the different wildlife that live there. So you can um, help with that. There's also Green Hills Park is being developed as a demonstration native plant garden. And I know they could use your help. Um, and then Lachlan Springs Park just got this huge new property that's beautiful, but it has euonymus vine covering most of the trees. And what happens is it eventually grows up the trees and, and kills the, the tree. And so they need people there to pull out the exotics. So lots you can do. Isaac, for someone who is ready to take the step and to think a lot more, much more deeply about picking native plants, your advice, where should they start? Well, I, I believe actually, uh, Kim, I believe that Charlotte Warner Parks have a resource that has a list. I mean, there are a lot of local organizations. You can find a list of native plant species. And I think a great place to start is in your, if you have, if you have the luxury of having a yard, start in your yard. Um, so many folks who have come out to events after the event, they're like, oh my gosh, I have so much privet and honeysuckle in my yard. And they had no idea. Um, so I think obviously you start with the education part of it, but once you become educated on what an invasive is, what a native is, there are resources out there to find lists of native plant species so that you can bring those into your yard. I mean, habitat fragmentation and the takeover invasives are, are inimical to biodiversity. But if you can bring a piece of habitat into your backyard and a space for native species to come and find the resources they need, I think that's a wonderful first step. Isaac Santos is a program coordinator at Shelby Park, and Kim Bailey is the former staff naturalist at Warner Parks. Thanks to you both for being with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Khalil. We have to take a short break. If native species are so important, what can be done just not to save them, but to help them flourish? Do you have plants or native plant species in your yard or garden? Tell us about it. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. In the natural world, everything is connected. Tennessee state butterfly, the zebra swallowtail, needs a native tree called the pawpaw. It's what they eat. It's where they lay their eggs. No pawpaws, no zebra swallowtails. And look, pawpaws aren't endangered, but when was the last time you saw one in someone's backyard? And I've never seen one. And what about native species that are seriously dwindling? Who's looking out for them? What do we lose when Tennessee, when a Tennessee plant goes extinct? And what exactly can we do before it's too late? To learn more, I'd like to introduce my next guests. Roger McCoy is Director of Conservation at the Tennessee Department of Environment and Conservation. And Cooper Breeden is Coordinator for the Tennessee Plant Conservation Alliance. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Roger, this is a passion for you, right? Absolutely. How'd you get into plant conservation? 
Uh, well, fortunately, I fell into botany in, in college and then went on to school and landed a job here in Tennessee over 20 years ago. Uh, worked a little bit for the U.S. Forest Service before that, and but uh, have learned a lot since I've been here in Tennessee. Okay, so what is your area of focus at the State Department? So in the Division of Natural Areas, we have two uh, main areas. One is tracking rare species statewide, and we keep up and establish the official state's rare plant list. And then we also identify sites uh, for protection and inclusion in the uh, State Natural Areas Program uh, under the State Natural Areas Preservation Act. So tracking rare species, how many do we have in Tennessee? So we have about over 500 vascular plants that are listed as rare. You know, not all of those are endangered. Endangered is a legal status. Uh, and then, so we have some endangered, some threatened, some special concern, and then we have a number of federally listed species as well, uh, primarily because of uh, our geography that Kim talked about. We have some endemic species uh, that occur nowhere else in the world but Tennessee. What, now, what percentage of the list are endangered or threatened? Uh, I don't know for sure. My guess is is probably about 15 to 20 percent of them are in state endangered and then threatened and special concern. Now, this may be a wild question you may not know. Is that a good comparative average compared to other states that you may know of? Uh, we probably have more listed species in Tennessee, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're doing uh, a poorer job. We have greater biodiversity and we have a greater number of endemic species uh, compared to maybe other states that uh, have less biodiversity. So just the nature of our latitude, the geography from east and west, the different physiographic provinces, uh, there are a number of species that naturally occur nowhere else in the world and therefore warrant protection under the rare plant list. Okay, so where can the amateur botanist go for more information? So. You can go to our website and read about the 84 state natural areas and learn what occurs there. And most of these have uh, some sort of infrastructure to go and, and visit. Uh, additionally, the uh, University of Tennessee Herbarium uh, has a website where you can see the number of pictures of virtually every single known plant from Tennessee and a map of their range. Uh, and then there's other resources. You know, a lot of folks use iNaturalist, which is a great resource for identifying and see what other people have identified in your area. So a lot of news we get can be doom and gloom. But do you have a happy story? Like, what is the success story of a species that you all have been able to save or resurrect? So great question. Just this year, last year, um, a plant called Cumberland Sandwort was delisted from the federal list. And the reason that was was primarily work of the Division of Natural Areas within our department, as well as state parks and, and the Big South Fork National Recreation Area. And this is a species that its global range is limited to just a few counties in the world. But mm -hmm. we've been able to protect sites uh, through the state natural areas program and state parks, as well as um, mitigate impacts from recreation. And so we had a celebration for that in April of this year. Uh, celebrating the success of that species coming off the endangered species list. Well, congratulations, or should I say congratulations to us all? To all of us. Yes. <laughs> now, Cooper, how about you? I mean, what's a win for the TPCA that you can tell us about? Yeah, I think uh, one great example, so the, the TPCA, the Tennessee Plant Conservation Alliance, the whole purpose of it is it's a, it's a loose network of organizations and agencies and individuals interested in rare plant conservation. Um, and really the whole goal of it is to increase our capacity to do more for rare plants in the state. 
Um, one great project uh, that has been going on for a couple of years now is run by a volunteer. Her name is Margie Hunter. Uh, she's been run, working on a species called uh, running glade clover, which is in here in Middle Tennessee, uh, in our cedar glades um, that are that are in this area, and it's kind of endemic here, and it's only known from a few populations, but. She's taken it upon herself to get in touch with some of the private property landowners where this naturally occurs, um, propagate the species, and introduce it into public protected lands. Mm -hmm. um, and she's been monitoring it herself for years. She's had help from a number of other volunteers and from uh, biologists at Division of Natural Areas. But it's been a highly successful project, and I think it um, provides a good base to build upon for other a model for future projects. A volunteer happy story. And that kind of leads me to my next question that, you know, you're working to collaborate and to create this collaboration and conservation efforts. Tell me, who have you been bringing together? Yeah, it's been, so it's been a lot of people. There are um, probably about 20 organizations or agencies now that are involved in rare plant conservation in one way or another. But really the, the goal is to bring more partners on board so that we can do more um, and address a lot of these concerns. Um, and so one of the ones, one of the ways that I've been trying to bring more partners on board is we have a number of institutions across the state, organizations that do horticulture. So like Cheekwood or Memphis Botanic Garden or Knoxville Botanic Garden, um, Reflection Writing, Arboretum in Chattanooga. They're all organizations that have a lot of horticultural expertise, but have not uh, traditionally been involved in local rare plant conservation projects. And so I've been working to bring them on board um, tried to s explore whether or not there is an interest at those organizations to figure out if they could play a hand in some of these rare plant conservation projects. Now, how how's it been going? It's been good. It's been, um, I mean, it's been slow going to, to, to work it out amongst everything else, but I've been working on that for about a year, and depending on the organization, it's at different stages. But at this point, uh, all of those organizations have received at least a small collection of rare plant seeds that they are currently growing out, and they're in different stages of that process. And um, for some of them, we have plans to build on that and uh, try to get them some more material that they can grow out. And eventually that will be used for restoration in the wild. So how will these collaborations kind of work to provide overall health and boost of health for our native plants? Um, so for for so specifically for a lot of these rare species, I mean, a lot of a lot of them occur on the lands that Roger and his division uh, manage. But there's a lot that occur on private lands or on other vulnerable lands where, they're not, where they don't have protection. And so ultimately the goal would be to preserve the genetic integrity of those populations by collecting seed and storing them in a seed bank or then propagating those out and introducing them into a protected area so that we have those populations, they're not in a highly vulnerable area and they can be preserved in somewhere like a state natural area or a state park. Then uh, talking about areas and locations, Roger, you track the locations of these rare species as well. What happens when you find out about a rare plant, but it's on private land? So we still map that record in our database. We have a team of biologists who do that. And then those data can get used for in a couple different ways. One is uh, through avoidance. So maybe there's a public works project and we might comment on potential impacts and maybe adjust the road or the power line or whatever that may be. And then when there's a concentration of rare species, we might work with the landowner. And if we have a willing landowner, uh, the state, uh, ha our department has an active uh, land acquisition program where we can uh, purchase land, add that to the system of state parks or state natural areas. 
Are there any new land acquisitions to talk about? Well, sure. Uh, it's an active thing. In fact, just yesterday, a colleague of mine uh, presented on a, an addition, uh, potential addition to Carter Cave State Natural Area down in Franklin County. So this is just north of the Alabama state line. And this is a site um, that has a number of rare plants, including a federally listed plant, Moorfields Leather Flower, as well as some other uh, rare plants to that region of the Cumberland Plateau. The Leather Flower, what's special about that? I love the name. So it's the genus Clematis, and, and your gardeners will be familiar with that. And specifically, this one was uh, first described, I think, back in the 1980s from North Alabama. By uh, It was found by an amateur botanist, and then Dr. Robert Crawl of Vanderbilt University described it new to science. Fast forward about 20 or 30 years, and uh, some botanists uh, who Cooper and I know uh, found it in the state of Tennessee, and then because it's federally listed, our division can get funds from the Fish and Wildlife Service, and we have botanists who go out and uh, look for new populations, manage populations when needed. Now, Cooper, you mentioned rare plant seeds. Is that something that folks can do in their backyards if they have them? Um, it is something that it, there are ways to get rare plant seeds. Some of the native plant nurseries sell rare plant species. Um but it's not something that's really encouraged as a as a restoration effort, uh, just because most people that when they're planting species in their backyard, it's not necessarily um, in large populations, and so it's not going to be a sustainable population that will allow that species to persist. Um, but it is it is another way to just ha incorporate native plants into your yard, and um, it like Isaac and Kim were talking about in that last segment, they just that fostering that connection and fosters a better uh, understanding of the ecosystem and the interaction between those plants and the, the butterflies or bees or birds that depend on it. I do not have a green thumb, so if I planted a native species in my backyard and killed it, I would feel incredibly <laughs> guilty. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Lake-Alona. We've been talking this hour about conserving our native plants. Now, Roger, what's the difference between a natural area and a state park? Good question. So we're part of the State Parks Bureau, and some of our state natural areas are managed by state parks. Your listeners in the Nashville area would best know Radnor Lake, which is a state natural area. It was one of the first designated in 1973. The purpose of the Natural Areas Act in those lands primarily is preservation. Recreation is secondary. So we also have natural areas on other agency lands. Here in Nashville, we have portions of Warner Park that are designated as a state natural area, at Beeman Park as well. And so our focus in natural areas is habitat and species conservation. Recreation is encouraged, but it's secondary. So you're not going to find the development uh, you might find at some state parks, the inns, or other facilities like that. But again, a lot of our natural areas are also state parks. Frozen Head is another good example of that one. Now, why is that distinction important? Well, it's important when the Natural Areas Act was signed by Governor Dunn in 71, it was really to make sure that we are preserving elements of our natural heritage across Tennessee. And again, recreation, we, we want to encourage that. But really, it, it is about the conservation of those rare communities and the species that thrive in them. Okay. Now, we just got a tweet from Engineered Spirit, and they sent us a photo of one of our many pawpaw trees. They were taken back in April when it was in flower. Thank you very much. You are the best Engineered Spirit. Now, 
Roger, your staff offers hikes through state parks, and you suggest taking a hike with a botanist. We'll have a link to more info on our show post at thisisnashville.org. But tell me, how is the experience of taking a hike with a botanist different? (laughs) Well, my wife would tell you that it's a very slow walk for starters, <laughs> and we're often looking at the ground, uh, which is true. So it's not, I mean, yeah, there's a nice, uh, you know, uh, exercise component to it, but to go out with an expert who knows those species, who can tell you about them, uh, you know, put a name to it, first of all, tell you a little bit about its habitat, and then it's just to share that with other people. I mean, when you're on those hikes and those outings that we offer through the Division of Natural Areas, you know, you're with a group of people who are just genuinely enthusiastic about what they're seeing. And it's just a different experience. It's a slower experience. So think less about a jog on a greenway and more about really just taking in what's there to see uh, and things that you might walk right past without someone pointing it out. Talking about people's enthusiasm. Now, Cooper, you work and you build these coalitions of people who work together on conservation. You know, what's your advice to people listening to us right now who may be enthusiastic and excited? How should they get started? That's a good question. I mean, I think a, a first step is is similar to what we've we've talked about before is just re reconnecting with nature. I think we've kind of lost that connection as a society with nature and we don't fully understand what's around us and the cool things that are around us. A lot of people don't know about, for instance, the cedar glades in, in Middle Tennessee, which have a lot of unique species that are found nowhere else. Um, and so I think I think getting out there more and connecting with nature, either by doing hikes like this uh, or even by starting your own gardens, as Isaac was saying, start creating your own habitat in your yard, it, it foster, re-fosters kind of that connection with nature. Um, that is one way, but uh, there's there's ways to volunteer uh, as individuals and get involved in some of these work, uh, some of these projects. So whether it's through the Tennessee Plant Conservation Alliance, and I actually work for the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative based out of Austin P. and one of my roles is to coordinate the TPCA, but we have um, volunteer opportunities through that at different areas across the state. And so, and I know a lot of other organizations have those opportunities as well. Do you get to hike much to check out plant life? I do. Yeah. I get, I get out quite a bit and, and see some unique areas, both in public natural areas, as well as some private areas. And there's actually a, a lot in some of the, like our public rights of ways on roadsides and uh, power line rights of ways that are, they're, they're small, but they're really cool areas to see. So say I'm going to take the leap, I'm going to get some seeds, I'm going to plant some things in my backyard. What should I plant? That's a good question. I mean, I think that kind of depends on your yard and the you got to know a little bit about the the ecology of your yard. Is it is it dry? Is it wet? Is it sunny? Is it shady? Um, it's very sunny and often filled with cats. <laughs> gotcha. Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think there are a couple common, really common uh, grasses that are kind of ornamental but native here, things like little blue stem or um, there's several different kinds of blue stem, but then you can intersperse it with some of the things that have been mentioned before, like uh, com- uh, cone flowers or black-eyed Susans or um, flocks and I um, can't remember some of the other things Isaac mentioned. But there's, there's, I mean, we have a huge diversity of species here and a lot of them are available at some of our native plant nurseries that are around the area. Awesome. We have a couple, yeah. Okay. Now, Roger, we heard earlier in the show about wild ginseng, which is now fairly rare. What what can we do to help people access the benefits they find from some of the plants without putting themselves in danger? Well, ginseng, you know, the big thing is not to dig it. Uh, you know, to help protect it. It is regulated, and there is an export, a legal export, out of the state. 
that's regulated by our division. Uh, the big thing is just enjoy the plants, particularly when you're on public land. Uh, look at them, uh, enjoy them, don't pick them. And if you do you know, want to pick some berries or something like that, if you're at Shelby Bottoms, there's nice blackberry patches there, that's okay. But you know, when it comes to digging up plants, uh, also, just in terms of recreation, stay on the trail. Uh, you know, those trails were designed by someone who had the resource in mind. Maybe that's even a cultural resource, uh, you know, to prevent erosion or, and avoid trampling native species. Now, I'd like to hear from both of you on this. We've got uh, just under two minutes left. You know, what do you think poses the bigger threat to our native species, climate change or development? Cooper. That's a tough question. I think maybe in the long term, climate change might be the answer, but that we'll we'll wait and see how that turns out. But I think, I mean, one of the things that I hear about on a very regular basis is different populations being destroyed because we don't really have uh, very good protection for rare plants um, that aren't on public properties. And so, I mean, it's very frequently that I hear about a plant being destroyed because of development, uh, because of a new gas station or something going in, or because of how it's managed on a roadside. And so that's happened on a very regular basis. And so I think in the short short term, I think uh, development and other threats like that are a bigger concern. You went out and tried to save some plants recently, right? I did. I did. There's a, uh, there was a federally listed species that only occurs in one county. It's called a Spring Creek Bladder Pod, only known from Wilson County, Tennessee, only known from a couple populations. Um, it's a, it was on a private site that we all of us have known about for years, and I've had my eye on it to d- do some seed collection just to preserve it because I knew the area was rapidly developing. Um, and I was talking to some people about it, and they're like, well, it's actually being developed and may have already been developed. And mm. so it was news to me. And so I went out there a few a couple hours before I was uh, set to fly out of the state and go on a trip and tried to do a rescue mission. And I was out there combing through the grass looking for the plants while uh, – as I would move over, the bulldozer would come and bulldoze an area. Wow. That's like a danger mission right there. Yeah. 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 Wow. I actually showed up seven minutes before they were going to blast at the site. Wow. <laughs> wow. The exciting life. I want to thank you so much for all the work that you're both doing. That is Cooper Breeden, coordinator of the Tennessee Plant Conservation Alliance. He was joined by Roger McCoy with thank the you. Tennessee Department of Environment and Conservation. Thanks again for being with us. Thank you. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, over the past few years, a handful of landmark restaurants have been closing. What do we stand to lose when our staple spots close for good? And what can restaurateurs do to survive? This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, Tasha A.F. Limley, Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Shout out to our intern, Doreen Chernecki. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Miss Margaret Rankel and Margie Hunter. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. And tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This Is Nashville. I'm Khalil Lake Alona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other.